Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 152nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Legitimacy is perhaps the single reason why anyone does just about anything. We use money because we believe it carries a certain weight or legitimacy. We abide by the rulings of courts because we believe they carry legitimacy. And we value our property because each of us believes that we have legitimately earned it. Most of these issues of legitimacy derive from the fact that we believe we live in a government which is founded upon legitimate grounds. We believe that the country that we live in follows a unique and high moral standard, and thus its laws are also cut from the same cloth. Because we ascribe a certain fairness and high moral standard to our nation, it allows us to submit voluntarily to its yoke, as that yoke is not derived from the barrel of a gun, but rather out of a general welfare for humanity. However, in these uniquely polarizing times, the question of legitimacy falls into question. With many people both on the left and right thinking the U.S. is no longer protecting the interests of the innocent, many people begin asking questions. There is both a positive and negative effect which is created when people begin questioning the world they live in. The positive is that we allow ourselves a special opportunity to correct all that is wrong and dysfunctional with the country we currently inhabit. The negative, however, is that we open the doors of instability and plunge ourselves into unknown territory. Joining me to help understand the issue of legitimacy, I am joined by Brett. Brett, do I have a legitimate reason to be concerned with what's going on in America right now? Yeah, I would say that you do, Aaron. I would say that you do. I think that legitimacy is how we justify not just to ourselves, but to, to everyone around us, because we are a fairly social species, how we, how we justify to others what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why we're allowed to be doing it. I mean, much of, of, of our society is, is based on these kind of like transparent rules that we all agree on. And that's that's where legitimacy comes from is like, are you following the rules as have been set forth? I, I think that there's something that kind of underlies rules, though. The reason that we follow rules is not just for the sake of following these rules, is that we believe that there's a moral or like we believe there's a higher component to those rules. So we believe that those rules have a reason, like they're there to protect us. They're here to protect the innocent, or they're here to make sure that uh, justice is served, right? So we have like these yep. higher virtues that are kind of supporting those rules, right? So I, I'm wondering that like, and, and, and this is like anything, like I, I'll give you an example of this. Imagine, when, I'm sure this happened when you were younger, that your mom or dad said, I want you to clean your room because I said so. And what does every kid say when their parent walks into the room and says, I want you to clean your room because I said, why should I do that, right? There's a why, why? And I, I think that in America, we're, we're coming to a point where we're starting to ask those questions of like, why? Why should I be doing this? Why, why am I following this? And I think it's harder to create legitimacy. It's harder to enforce the rules when those why questions aren't being answered. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that uh, in addition to that, people are finding that the rules, so the rules tend to, to fall apart when people perceive other people to not be following them. 
like the game only works when we're all playing when when as soon as someone is exempt it's it becomes unfair and then uh, people want to to kind of like it's like well if you know why should i clean my room when you're not cleaning your room that doesn't seem fair and that will really cause you to question why um restrictions have been placed on you in this case the restriction of having a messy room and so it's like especially to like in the modern era like people are are noticing all of these like unfair loopholes to the rules and it's it's damaging the legitimacy of the entire system right so we have like and i think that is um you know as, as a teacher i always kind of experience this like where one kid will be like you didn't tell him to be quiet you only told him, right so if the rules are not being like evenly distributed then people stop following those rules because they feel that a certain class of people um is enjoying like a certain favoritism and that, and that kind of like leads people to start breaking the rules when they feel that one group is exempt from the rules and yet they are beholden to those rules you know the same thing happens in um if we think about like uh france right right on the cusp of the french revolution the nobles at that time paid zero taxes they, they paid zero taxes whereas everyone else was forced to pay not only taxes, but stiff taxes. So this is idea of why does this group of people um, have an exemption status, whereas everyone doesn't. Do you think that that we we see things like that going on in the United States right now, where like certain classes of people are privileged from the rules and, and that is causing everyone else to sort of question whether the game is fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, <laughs> with, with, I mean, like with all of the, the publicity that, that certain billionaires have been getting lately in regards to the slack they get for committing pretty heinous crimes right they um i think they're like mostly getting away with it right and and yeah people are really fed up with that um definitely especially when it's someone who like shouldn't need to bend the rules is bending the rules it can really feel well so at first it could feel like it's unfair right it could be like like you know like why does this person get away with something that I don't get away with. But when enough of them are bending and breaking the rules, it can get even worse. It can go from from feeling unfair to feeling like it's intentionally set up that way to just, you know, it's like to, to use your your previous example, it's like imagine you have a sibling and they don't they don't have to clean their room and you find out that the reason they don't have to clean their room is because they 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 need the time that they would have been using to clean their room to like raid the the fridge for snacks, right? And it's like not only do they get an unfair exception to the rule, they're using their unfair exception to get one up on top of you. And I, I think that that that's what people are noticing now more than ever is is this idea of like not only are people cheating, they're they're cheating directly at your detriment. This area is the most prevalent in in taxation. Remarkably, you know, the United States, I think, I think it's been since 1910 or 1912, we've had the graduated income tax. And we all know that like you start paying 33% in taxes at a remarkably low level. I, I think like in a place like New York City, it kicks in at like once you earn 50 grand or something, right? Which mm -hmm. you and I are both New Yorkers. We know that 50 grand just, it doesn't take you all that far in this uh, wondrous city of ours. And you're paying 33% of your income in taxes, whereas billionaires are paying zero. And that's creating a legitimacy crisis because it's not even as if the billionaire is paying the same as you, they're paying less or nothing at all. 
And I, I think that this is causing people to be like, why am I working so hard? Why am I paying into this system when others are exempt from that? Which is exactly the cause of the French Revolution. It wasn't just that people were starving in France that caused people to um, string up King Louis XVI. It was the fact that there was an entire class of people that were protected from paying anything. And that actually strikes at the, the foundation of legitimacy, right? In order, in order to have legitimacy, I think legitimacy is tied with fairness or justice, right? I think the two, they're they're not the same word, but I think that they're kind of interrelated. And when you don't have justice in a system, you start losing legitimacy. So what, what do you think about that relationship between justice and legitimacy? Like even, even in, in systems of government where the, the government's very oppressive, there's still always at least a little bit of a consensus between the rulers and the ruled on like allowing themselves to be to submit to supplicant to to a king or a president or an emperor or whatever right and i think that that people do that because they feel like their lives will be better under that system right like like you know being the bottom of a totem pole in in a community is still probably better than just like being free and on your own, just because that sounds really wonderful, but like, you'll have to catch your own food and start your own fire and build your own shelter. And that might not, that might be beyond the realm of what you're capable of doing. And the justice part I think comes in when you start to consider that, like, okay, the, the government is, they have some rules uh, that they set up. They say it's for everyone's benefit but i notice that it's really only for a few people's benefit it's not for me and that that's i think that's what what you're kind of getting at right is is that idea of like they don't get justice right essentially they're finding out that they're being used instead of um partaking in a community you actually made i don't know if you're aware of this but you actually made a very good utilitarian argument that let's just say for example i'm a peasant and my my i'm starving i'm absolutely starving and I, I find a king, I, I enter this kingdom, right? And I know that the kingdom is unfair, but then I kind of weigh my options. I'm like, okay, what are you gonna decide? Are you gonna decide to starve to death? Or are you going to participate in this corrupt system? And like, it is corrupt, right? Like these, um, these vassals, these nobles are living way, way, way better than you, but it's better than uh, starving to death, right? To, to, to participate in this corrupt system. I guess with every system, there, there starts becoming a breaking point where the corruption or the lack of justice or the lack of legitimacy, it's almost as if you're, you come to a point where you're like, well, I'm just better off starving at this point than, than participate in, in, this, in this high level of corruption or this high level of legitimacy. And it is a question, like I think each of us has a certain threshold for putting up or tolerating corruption or a lack of justice. But I do think that it does reach a breaking point where mentally, I think the mind gives out before the body does. Oh, yeah. I, I think that it's it's kind of like, you know what it's kind of like? It, it, you just gave me a, a good idea. It's kind of like, like having a job. Living under the yoke of any government or any system is, is near identical to having a job. You're essentially expected to contribute in some way, and you're compensated in some way for your contributions. Now, with a job, it's much more straightforward. You contribute directly to the business and you are paid with, with money, right? With, with, with the community, 
the contributions are a little they're not exactly the same like that they're like a little bit more esoteric a little bit more nebulous uh there are more things like like behaving yourself in public there are things like uh, not you know like not stealing following the law paying your taxes i guess right and then the benefits you don't get paid in money per se rather you get paid in having security in your neighborhood having nice parks having blah 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 so like a job though it's like theoretically there, there's always a better job there's always a better life out there for you if you're willing to look so it's not a question of like is are you living in like the best possible scenario because you never will be there's always room for improvement right even even the highest of kings can still have a better life for themselves in one way or another it really is a question of like what's the the threshold where you'll start looking when will you when will things get bad enough that you'll be like okay i'm still alive technically but i want to see what else is out there because i'm not super thrilled with what's happening right now because when when you reach that threshold in my opinion that's when the legitimacy actually breaks. It's not when you find that new job. It's not when you essentially over in this analogy, overthrow your government. It's when you decide, I think I could do better. I should just look into it because it's when you look into it is when you realize like you just start to compare stuff and just kind of like realize how big of a gap there is between what you have and what you could have. Okay, I, I love what you're saying, actually. So it's like, essentially, if you're a peasant, and there's only one kingdom in town, well, then you just don't have the knowledge or the wisdom to know of a better way of life. There's only one kingdom in town. And that's the only way that there is or has been for a very long time. So you don't have the insight to look elsewhere. It only becomes a problem when you start talking to one of your friends who lives in another kingdom, like, oh, well, my king allows me to do this, or my king allows me to have every Saturday and Sunday off, right? Then you start, your mind starts being filled with alternate possibilities, right? And in the United States, we have Western Europe that, you know, has uh, more perhaps egalitarian or socialist programs and so forth. So that's filling our mind with ideas, right? It's we're being filled with those ideas. It also could be that people could just have ideas. They may not have been enacted um, anywhere in the world, but we just have these ideas. And there's always that question of like, well, why can't we do that? Even though it's never been done, there's always that question of like, well, I have this idea. What's wrong with this idea? And then it's it's up to the government to then refute that idea and be like, okay, here's why we can't have universal basic income. Here's why it wouldn't work. And when the government is unable to refute that new idea, then another issue of legitimacy begins to arise. I think part of it too is that you, when you say like... Um... Uh, you know, like uh, in your example, you have like a peasant who's like living is like, is he living good enough that he's going to be wondering what else is out there? There is definitely a cost to changing your system of government. There's definitely a cost to deciding you want something new that change. And so it's got to be worth more than whatever you're suffering under now. So it's like, is colonization of Mars possible? Probably. But most Americans are not clamoring for Mars colonization right now because, frankly, things are it's not worth it. We don't need that much investment in that. If the climate crisis gets a lot worse, then maybe that'll change and people will start considering it. But for now, even though it is technically better, it would be a huge boon for the United States to to do something like that. 
we're not really thinking about it. Things aren't bad enough yet, if that makes sense. Well, hold on, though, because bad is relative to where you are in history, right? So, like, people could say, oh, well, things are very bad in 2021, but are they as bad as the Great Depression? Are they as bad as medieval Europe? Probably not, right? Like, it's not, we're not, for most of us, at least, you know, yes, times are tough. If you probably traveled anywhere else in history, you would find that life was a lot worse. So, we can say that, so... I think our definition of bad is relative to the exact pinpoint you are in history. So I don't know if there's material like objective criteria that makes a situation bad. I think it's the relative feeling of, of what people feel. If people feel that something's bad, then it is bad. And it, there, may, there need not be any material criteria for something to feel bad. There could be people starving um, in a country, for example. And if that has always been the norm, then for them, it's always been the norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, when I said bad, I meant relative to what the people are used to. Not even necessarily tied to a, a time period, but just like, if people feel like things are bad, then then they're bad. That's that's how that works. Is that like if they're like it's really bad, things are really bad right now, then they're going to be inspired to seek change. Whether or not we would agree that things are bad enough for them to be seeking change is irrelevant, right? It's as you said, it's dependent on the person. So this brings me to the point of like why exactly people are are feeling frustrated because on one hand it's not at you know great depression levels of starvation or um, French Revolution levels where people were eating grass and grasshoppers in order to survive and yet our generation is feeling really discontent and I think what is what's going on and and I think what, what's helpful here is that you and I are both millennials. We're both in our thirties. I think what's going on here is that America has experienced some kind of regression from what was. So we know that our grandparents and our parents had a much easier go of it. Like just being able to buy a house, being able to support a family on a single income was just a lot easier in the past than it is now. So although people of America, for the most part, I'm generalizing here, are not necessarily starving to death, because there has been a regression or we've moved backwards, that's what's creating the legitimacy crisis. Because we know that in the past, something great was possible, and now we're moving away from that greatness. Yeah. And I think also part of it is that people feel we're not just moving away from that greatness, but we're moving away from that greatness because other people are taking advantage of a system that we all agreed on. For example, you know, when a, a, a billionaire takes advantage of like, you know, local tax laws to not pay taxes because they register themselves as like a new business. And it's like, you know, technically you're not breaking the law by not paying taxes, but like we all know that you're just like a subsidiary of, of Walmart or Amazon, right? And you're not, um, you're not really a new business. And then they're like, but they have lawyers who can help argue that case that they are and take advantage of these laws that were meant to help us, but are instead helping them, right? And then it's like, that feels unfair. That's when the legitimacy starts to go out the window. If things are bad because things are bad, like, you know, it's just like a rough season for farming or because of a, an, ex, an outside invasion or something, then I don't think people necessarily are going to question the legitimacy right away. You know, what you're saying kind of reminds me, there's a famous, uh, I think he was a political scientist. He might've been a sociologist. I forget his name right now, 
but he believed in something called the generational contract. And that, that, that is this idea that you see your father doing something like living an upright life and reaping the rewards of that upright life. So you, and, and to put this in an American context, you see your father, he gets a decent paying job, uh, he pays off his mortgage, he has a good pension. And then that father passes on the generational contract to the son, meaning like, okay, you see how I lived, you saw I had a decent home, you see I had two cars and whatnot. Do you think that when these corporations do what you just said, like they, they set up uh, fiat companies and do all this stuff, they're kind of undermining and breaking that generational contract that, that we all instinctually knew to, to once exist, but now no longer exists because they're kind of, they're trying to subvert the rules that were once in place. I mean, they're, they're sticking their hands into the take a penny tray and they're taking <laughs> all the pennies, even though they don't need them. They're taking advantage of, of a rule that's in place to help everyone there. It's not a good feeling. You know, it's people don't like when that happens. People don't like when they abuse their power for that kind of stuff. And people certainly don't like when big faceless companies do it, especially when they get like backing of the government. You know, um, I think that when it comes to what, what, what you were saying about what you were saying about the contract between like, you know, child and parent of like, it, this is how it was for you. This is how it should be for me. I, I agree. I, I think that especially when people can point the blame at a specific group like that, that kind of undermines legitimacy. And, and like what I mean by that is to, to, to like think about how legitimacy is arrived is let's say you, you are a new hire. You just, you just got hired to this new company. And there's, let's say, an older lady or an older gentleman, and this older gentleman is a gray beard. He has gray hair, and he works there. He has the nice corner office, and he's been working there for 25 years. And he says, hey, I, I started off you know, working uh, the reception desk, whatever it is, and here I am now. You can have this too if you play by the rules and so forth. And I think that generational contract gets corroded when the company says, that guy with gray hair, how much are we paying him? Oh, oh, oh wait a minute, we, we could get someone younger in here that does the job cheaper away with the gray beard, right? Off with his head. So mm -hmm. that, that kind of corrodes legitimacy because we all believe that if we work hard into a system, we will become that like gray beard guy who's earning a good salary, has a good life. But when we see examples of people just being laid off at the age of 49 and everything, every, every, ounce of sweat that they invested into that company was for nil, that starts corroding people's belief, belief that things work in general. Yeah. I, I think that if, so that is like almost on a micro level legitimacy. And I think that that same thing carries up all the way up into like systems of government where people think like, oh, you know, participate in, in local government. If I vote on things, I go into my community, I can affect change. And then like finding that they can't for whatever reason definitely hurts the legitimacy of, of government. I think that, you know, if you look at examples in history, like late first century BC Rome, uh, you can see this happening in real time. Well, no, sorry. We're seeing it happening in real time right now. You can see examples of it happening if you look back in history to, let's say, late first century BC, where the mechanisms of government, which, you know, mostly stood 
for for centuries starts to get eroded as these kind of like larger than life cult of personality politicians begin taking advantage of of totally legal well mostly legal things that are are in the system for their own good they're they're abusing the rules it's not cheating it's worse than cheating cheating is is acceptable if a general decides in the united states like i want to rule the country and he gets like a thousand soldiers and he marches on the capitol that is not a threat to american government legitimacy it's a it's a rogue agent trying to take over the country and with all with any luck the 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 u.s army will be able to put down this what would be called a terrorist and uh Although he wouldn't really be a terrorist, he'd be more like a like a wannabe dictator. Uh, he'd, the point is that he'd be able to, uh, the government with any luck would be able to put down this this revolt, and and that would be it, right? An existential threat would be like if the military discovered, or if a general discovered like a law that said like during times of crisis, a general can use the the soldiers as keepers of the peace. And then he grabbed his soldiers and he compelled them to serve because he was like, we are in a crisis by all definitions and I am invoking this law. And everyone else was like, this is bad. I don't like that you're doing this. And he's like, well, it's legal. You can't stop me from doing it. And now that hurts legitimacy badly because now it's like we have to either agree that our system of government is wrong or we have to just let this guy do whatever he wants. And then if you decide to take the route of like, no, I don't, this guy is, is trying to take over America. I'm going to raise an army and, and fight him. Now you're the one that is, is going outside of the law. Right. And now you're fighting an uphill battle because you're not just fighting this guy who is, is in your opinion, trying to take over the country. You're also fighting the public opinion where people think that you are, you know, you're, you're breaking the law. You're, you're a criminal. Right. And if you if you follow the same route that he does and you're like, I think that him raising this army causes an even bigger crisis, which means I can raise my own military, then you're just normalizing this already bad system. And you're just ensuring that in the future, more and more people just like you are going to do the same thing. And so it's it's that's the real crisis of legitimacy and people bend the rules. Okay, well, l- let's talk about martial law for for one second. Let's just use your scenario of like a general saying, "Okay, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna sus- like habeas corpus has been suspended." First off, I mean, in in this country at least, it would be the president that would declare martial law and suspend habeas corpus. Yeah, you know what? Let's talk about the president instead of a, a general. That makes yeah. Sense. So let's say the president uh, declared martial law and um, suspended habeas corpus. First, there would be for that to be legitimate. There would be there would need to be a few things present. There would have to be like a real clear and present danger for the president to to, to do that. Like there would have to be like, hey, if I don't do this, it's 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 end game, right? So there have to be a really clear and present danger for him to to do those things. And two, it's for a very 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 short duration of time. Martial law is not something that goes on for a decade. It goes it's something that is used for like a few months to clean up a really 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 yucky mess. I think the only time that it was ever declared was uh, Abraham Lincoln, very short period of time. And it was the Civil War, which is a damn good reason to declare martial law, right? It's a civil war. So I think that if the pre- if the president declared martial law and one, there was not a legitimate threat to the country, and two, 
if that legitimate threat just went away and the martial law was still in effect, then there would be legitimacy in people opposing the president's power at that given point. Well, I think your problem here, Aaron, is that you just mentioned several things that are very, very much um, perspective, not factual. I mean, I think that if Donald Trump said, uh, if so, if Donald Trump came out and said, I'm declared, not now, because he's not the president, but like last year, if he'd come out and say, I'm declaring martial law, then people would be like, I don't think you should be doing this. But if he came out and said, I'm not giving the illegal aliens on the border a fair trial because they're cheating the system and we need to kind of take control of the situation. Well, I would not agree with that. I don't think you would, but I, I know at least a few people who would be fine with that. I know at least a few people who would be fine. And that is suspension of habeas corpus, not for everyone, but for some people, certainly. And yeah, I, I don't think it's as far-fetched as you're making it out to be. And I don't think it's as far away as you're making it out to be. I think that we were maybe like, like a week or two away from, from getting there anyway, in real life. And when that happens, you're, you're, you're a step away from now. It's like, okay, if he can do it to advance his agenda, then can we do it to advance our agenda? And now you're, you're tearing a hole through the, the rule book. You know? I'm not an expert on this. I'm not a lawyer, but I think habeas corpus would only apply to US citizens, meaning uh, in order to, to have that benefit, you would have to be a full-fledged uh, US citizen. So I think the, the danger would be, you know, because the US, and, and we can debate whether this is legitimate or illegitimate, like we have um, areas on Guantanamo Bay, for example, where we keep people indefinitely with no unquestionable, like not the highest, the highest standard of jur jurisprudence, let's just say, right? So mm -hmm. it would be, it would become, and, and obviously that's not a positive thing, but I think it would be like, like for it to be a full legitimacy crisis, he would have to suspend habeas corpus on just a person that has 100% U.S. citizenship. It, according to the 2008 Supreme Court decision, um, Bush v. I want to say his name was Bodamine. Uh, it was it was um, decided by the U.S. Supreme Court that um, basic right of habeas corpus. Uh, AKA the right to challenge illegal detention extends to non-citizens and even in foreign territory. So, okay. That I didn't know that I yep. did not know. Okay. That's the, so that's so, so there are, so there are violations. So what you're saying then is that there are violations that have been slow. Like there's been a slow breakage of law and no one is being held accountable for it. Yeah. And and that's bad. But what's worse is when once it happens, you can't you can't put the, the sins back in the box once you take them out, uh, as, as I kind of illustrated with the, the not so good general example. Once you start once you start bending the rules, you, you, you incite other people to bend them in ways that allow them to challenge your now superior position or you you show them how well they can do bending the rules and then they'll bend them just as much as you do until that rule is is bent completely out of shape the fall of the roman republic precipitated by this by this constant bending of rules by this constant cheating of uh, that's a, it's not cheating that's the problem it's not cheating of the system it's like you know um 
like for example uh, in ancient rome uh they would um their basic structure of government included essentially two presidents that they called consuls and that was the highest office in the land but there was really there was one higher one that was called dictator and dictator was like an emergency office that the senate could appoint that would give someone supreme authority without any checks or balances for a certain amount of time to fix problems and it was used once or twice a really, really, really long time ago in their history to like win certain wars. Like I believe a dictator was appointed to fight the war against Hannibal and the Carthaginians during the Second Punic War. Um, and then it wasn't really used again until uh, Sulla became consul. And then Sulla basically forced the Senate to make him a dictator so he could remold the laws of the Constitution so that his, his personal enemies, who he perceived as enemies of Rome, but they, you cannot mistake that his personal enemies, a man led by a man named Marius, his old general, um, his, to make his personal enemies like unable to c- control the government again. And, and from his perspective, it was not like a, 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 a Looney Tunes evil, like I'm Emperor Palpatine and I'm taking over the Galactic Senate kind of nonsense. It was, he saw Marius as an existential threat to the empire. He saw Marius as someone who was going to provide citizenship to people that he didn't think deserve citizenship. He saw Marius as someone who was going to be stealing too much. I say too much because they were all stealing. Corruption was just a thing. Uh, but stealing too much from the Roman government. He saw Marius as, essentially he saw Marius as, as a threat to the people, right? And so he used this, this power. He bend the rules. He made himself a dictator by kind of cajoling the Senate into doing it to, to knock Marius away. But the, and it worked for like a year or two. But the problem is that once he did that, all these other people were watching and they were like, I did not realize we could do that. I had never done that before because I just assumed we couldn't do it. But now that I've seen you do it, I'm going to do it. And then right after the era of Marius and Sulla comes the era of you know, Pompey and Crassus and Julius Caesar. And then right after the era of Julius Caesar comes Augustus Caesar and Mark Antony. And that's it. That's it for the emperor, the empire. Okay. Let's, let's break this apart a little bit. So when a president or consul declares martial law and and kind of bends legitimacy, it's never because there's a purple dragon that's going to attack the state, right? They have to come up with something, something that sounds plausible or slightly legitimate. So I think it's the question of like, how much debate is there of whether that thing is like a purple dragon or whether it's a real, real legitimate threat. So I I think, I think the, the devil's in the details, like how much effort is actually put in, in debating whether could this really bring down the whole United States that we need to declare martial law, or is it a purple dragon? That's kind of what I think legitimacy is determined in that discourse. I agree. I think that I'm, I might just be pessimistic, but I think that, that, reasons can be fabricated like all it doesn't take a good reason it takes just a person who has the political capital and the willingness to to use it right and they'll just they'll just go out and they'll make up a rule they'll make up a reason and there'll be people who believe it i mean like i don't know take your pick environment abortion uh, civil rights illegal immigration 
corruption. You could any of these buzzwords can be used to fabricate a crisis in the United States that would require martial law. And and I, I intentionally picked things that could be on both sides. I, I think it would have to meet the definition of like eminent danger, meaning like 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 we are going to be wiped out next week danger. Right. I, I I don't know if martial law I don't believe martial law could be declared for a longer, more because like thing like let's say climate change, for example. Is it a danger? Yes, but I think it falls into the category of a existential danger. I don't think it's like an em like I'm being I'm trying to get this right because it's like, yes, it could wipe us out in the long run, but it's not tomorrow. Tomorrow no, no. we are gone kind of you're, danger. You're right, but you don't you don't have to focus on on martial law. It's this this whole thing is like death by a thousand cuts. I mean, again, we can look at real world examples. You know, Donald Trump secured at least part of the funding for his border wall through an emergency fund that is meant to be saved for states of emergency in the United States. And that, to me, that stretches incredulity um, in terms of, is this really an eminent threat to the country? But apparently it was enough that he was able to do it. And so it's like, it doesn't need to be tomorrow someone goes on TV and says like, global warming is um, going to destroy our country, so I am now the emperor. It, it comes in, in bits and pieces, little things like this, like using money that was supposed to be used for an emergency and using it to build a vanity project and then saying like, well, illegal immigration is an emergency, so I have a right to use this, right? And then wh what's the next time this is going to happen? Who's the next person that's going to seize emergency funds or emergency powers in the name of something that not everyone agrees is an emergency. Okay. I want you to use your, um, maybe take off the philosopher hat and put back your historical hat. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this question. Okay. Has there, is there any room in history where someone has acted in an illegitimate manner, right? They overextended their- Never. They're Never bound. <laughs> well, well, let me finish the question. So someone in history has overextended the boundaries, but then there was a course correction that put the country back into legitimacy. So I, I would say, like, let's just go with your example. Let's say uh, Donald Trump acted in an illegitimate manner, but the course correction was that Joe Biden was then elected president. So once once the, the first like there's a transgression that's made, right? Is mm -hmm. it possible then for like someone to slightly err on the side of illegitimacy, but then the country just wakes up and then course corrects, and now we're back within the realm of legitimacy? Or once the fund once the first transgression is made, it's all over? No, I, I think there's there's plenty of examples where like. Uh, you know, things start leaning towards anarchy and illegitimacy, and then they get snapped back. I mean, like in Rome, you have the 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 the, the crisis of the third century, and then the tetrarchy comes right after—not right after; it's a hundred years—but the tetrarchy comes afterwards and and puts puts the pieces back together. You have, um, you know, the the War of the Roses in 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 England, right? The um, there's like a, a feckless king on the English throne in like like the mid 1400s, and the Roman uh, the Roman the sorry the the English nobles are basically fighting over who gets control of the throne because the person who's in control is like no interest in ruling, um, and and eventually it does get back to normal, right? It's it's not like it just the whole country descends into anarchy. 
So yeah, yeah, it, it's, it happens, of course. Okay, so that, and that's a positive thing. So that means that every country has a, a certain tolerance for a bastard ruler, right? So every, every like, like it, it's possible that you could have a, a, a bastard ruler who has nefarious ideas, but it doesn't mean that one, one nefarious ruler does not mean the end of, of the civilization. It could, it could easily, there could be a course correct and things could snap within back into the boundaries of legitimacy. So let's go back to the, to the general question of legitimacy in the United States. There was a course correction, and and now we have like a new president and so forth. Why are people still feeling that things in the United States are illegitimate, even even though there's been quote unquote a course correction? I mean, my I, I would say the most boring answer would be there just hasn't been enough time to course correct. These these things don't happen in months or even years. Maybe decades would be better. I mean. There's definitely governments, especially old governments, of which America is not really one, but it's still decently old. Um, old governments have momentum. It takes more than just one bad ruler to put a throw a country into chaos. Um, you know, uh, the the collapse of the Julio Claudian dynasty in Rome was over. I would say three emperors, almost like fifty total years. But yeah, so to answer your question, I I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for. I would say the reason people still feel like things are illegitimate is because just there hasn't enough time passed for them to realize that it's not. So I'm going to ask you to be a little bit of a prophet here. Um, (laughs) So 10 years from now, COVID is completely wiped out and everyone's just happily going back to their jobs. It's just, it's, it looks like, do you think we'll ever get to a point of like what I call 90s America, like the like the, the America of your childhood, like 1995 Bill Clinton America, where everyone's just going to work, government is good, the Supreme Court is legit. Like, do you think it's possible that in 10 years from now, we'll be looking back at this period and be like, yep, yeah, it's like 1996 all over again. If you work hard and you uh, pay your taxes, you'll buy a house and just America will continue right on. Do you think that's possible? I think to get back to that, yeah, I do think it's possible. I mean, like, if you look at you know the Great Depression, the country bounced back from that. We bounced back from the housing crisis um, in in two thousand and eight. I, I think that um, I don't think that we need like some kind of grand revolution to like set this to set everything right. It feels right now, especially for us, because we we have such. I mean, these things, like I said, these things happen on a very long time scale, and we are only human, and so it can feel your whole life has been one way. And it's like when someone describes, well, it used to be like this before you were born. It's like, it can feel like a fairy tale, you know, cause you didn't experience it and you don't see any evidence of it. So you're like, how is this even possible? But things can course correct kind of like in a natural, quiet, slow way. I, I'm in my head, what I'm picturing right now is like America's move from like, the 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 20s the 30s the 40s the 50s you know america had ups and downs throughout all those decades and and yeah there are some people who lived through all of them and and would have had a, a very tumultuous economic life but it's not like any kind of like insane war civil war happened i mean i guess world war 1 and world war 2 but it's not like any kind of insane uh war happened that like forced the economy to fix itself in america it fixed itself because 
it just did, right? Just slow kind of policy changes and, and whatever. Amazon, you know, there was a time when, when Microsoft like ruled the world. There was a time when, when no one could challenge Blockbuster or Sears. Things change. Feels like, it feels like Amazon will be around forever. They might not be, right? They, who knows? They might have like a disastrous investment thing or a bad product rollout or maybe some new technology will make a big portion of their business uh, irrelevant. And, and, you know, they, they might be replaced by smaller companies and, and, and you'll get back to that kind of like mom and pop economy that we had in the 90s. There's a part of me that finds your words very comforting. <laughs> and I, I 100% want to believe that, that we're going back to 90s America where there was- Well, I didn't say we're going back. I said we could go back. <laughs> okay. So there is half of me is like, whoa, thank you, Brett. Um, that makes me feel really good inside. The part of me that doesn't feel so good inside is I'm not really worried about a top-down legitimacy crisis. Like I think when we think of legitimacy crisis, we think of a corrupt ruler or a corrupt president just completely going haywire. I'm actually not worried about that scenario. I'm actually worried of the scenario where people get poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and AI comes and replaces people's jobs. And there's a whole bunch of unemployed men and they have nothing to do all day and they can't, they, they have no money. That's the kind of, like when I think of a legitimacy crisis, that's the legitimacy crisis that I'm afraid of. It's, I'm not so worried about some corrupt guy becoming president and taking over the whole show. I'm more worried about like, we're gonna have legions of, of unemployed men with nothing to do. And that's going to be a legitimacy crisis. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna lie. Um, well, so I'll start by saying this, that we're not even close to the first generation to undergo some kind of like insanely radical automation uh, revolution, right? I mean, like the printing press put, you know, thousands out of work and changed the imp- game of information forever. And, and the, the assembly line, the steamboat, the engine, like there have been, we are not unique. People think that the internet is this totally new invention. I mean, I guess it is. It's not like they had the internet in medieval times. But what I mean is that this idea of like this new piece of technology that's changing the world has just been revealed. This is not new. And this, in the, I would even argue that the internet's not even like the biggest one. You know, I would probably argue that the printing press was a bigger deal or even like the, the, the combustion engine, right? But the point is, is that this has happened before. And when the combustion engine was invented, there wasn't suddenly just like, oh, now the people with the means to own engines are running the show and everyone else is just a pauper. Like we got through it. We were okay. Same thing with the printing press. People were able to kind of like still be successful, even though if you owned a printing press, it meant that you owned the ability to print out tons and tons of information. You basically controlled the flow of information, right? We got through that. So I don't be, I wouldn't be too worried about that. Um, like, it's just like a side note. It's like, as the technology becomes better and better, it becomes more and more accessible. So like AI taking away jobs at a certain point that AI will be available to you as well. You'll be able to leverage it to do things that you want to do. It'll directly improve your life. It probably already is, to be honest. So I guess my, my concern is this low-level AI 
at this point, and, and as, as we're talking in 2021, can already write very basic legal memos. It can already yeah. write a basic legal memo. And it's projected. I don't, I don't like the term AI. I prefer it. Could we use the, the term machine learning? Sure. Machine. A, <laughs> AI is like a, a sci-fi thing. It's like a buzzword. It's not, there are no artificially intelligent robots. There's, there were not, no one's building them. We're not even close to even wanting to build them. They're not a thing. It's a, a movie thing. Machine right. learning is, is the real thing. Okay. Can I just say machines? Would you be okay with that? Yeah. That's oh, okay. So we have machines now that can write low level legal memos. And it's projected that these machines would be able to write like a, the equivalent of a novel by 2053. And I, I read it. You know, it would be a, you know, it would be a better way to say it is algorithms. We have algorithms. Oh, that okay. Write. Beautiful. Okay. Because that's what it is. They're basically math equations, right? So it's we, like a really complex math equation that lets you do what you just said, write a law memo. Okay, so we have algorithms that can write low level legal memos, and then it's projected that these algorithms will be able to write like the equivalent of a best selling novel by 2053. Mm -hmm. And if you're a computer programmer, you'll have a job, okay? Like there'll, there'll need to be people to maintain the algorithms, modify the algorithms, write new algorithms. But what the hell does everyone else do? Like I can see, <laughs> like I, I, I can see the computer programmers always having a job maintaining the algorithms. But if, if even a lawyer, like there's technology right now where uh, there's algorithms, for example, that are better at spotting cancer than a, than a doctor's eye, right? Like there's algorithms that can actually diagnose illnesses, spot cancer. So this is, this is what I am kind of leaning towards of what happens when we get to this level where the algorithm is not just doing like the factory work, but it's also doing the work of lawyers. It's doing the work of doctors. The only people I see having a job are the computer programmers. I mean, you know, good for you guys. What the hell does everyone else do? Well, you're not a doctor. I don't think, right? No. So this benefits you. Like you will in the in the future, you'll be able to you'll be able to get diagnoses without having to pay for a doctor. That improves your quality of life. It'll at first be something you'll have to pay for, but the technology will eventually get so good that it'll become free. You'll just have it. It'll just be part of your life. You won't even think about it anymore. As the technology gets better, the accessibility increases. To answer your question of like, what are they going to do? You know, as the world gets more complex, as, you know, I, this, I would ask the same question as like, what happened to like, you know, as refrigeration became more advanced and more widespread, what happened to the milkmen? What happened to the, the book binders when the printing press was invented. What happened to what is happening to the newspaper industry as the 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 paperless revolution is taking off? When the self-driving car becomes like a totally real thing that everyone is doing, what's going to happen to the insurance industry that services people who get into accidents? Because it, there, there'll be no need for it anymore. Because you know you. Um, it's not your fault if your car gets into an accident. It's not, you didn't do it. Your car did it, right? It's, yes. it's, like, a, it's like an under warranty thing. And that's, that's too complicated. Unfortunately for me, that's too complicated of a question to answer. I, I honestly can't give you a good answer. The only thing I could say to you is that industries have come and gone in the past and uh, the world seems to be okay in terms of that. Um, I, I would have to look up, but I would imagine wealth inequality, even though, in this very in in a micro sense, it's currently concentrating. 
if you look at like a broad stroke of like, let's say a hundred years, it's probably been spreading. The wealth is, uh, the planetary wealth has been spreading. And that's the other thing too, that's worth mentioning because we're, since we're talking about keeping jobs, you're essentially talking about resources, right? Even though it feels like resources are a finite thing, and they are realistically, they also have like an elasticity to them. Making it easier to get a diagnosis from a doctor generates more resources than it loses. One doctor who's making, let's say $100,000 a year will lose their job, but literally thousands and thousands of people will be able to get diagnoses for free. And so you can look at that as wealth has been generated. And I, I and I, I applaud that, and I think that's going to be we're going to be living in wondrous times when that happens. The problem that I think most people are feeling is they kind of just want government to step in and say we're going to have some like some kind of universal basic income or some kind of mechanism that will allow you to enjoy the fruits of this technology, but all of your needs will be provided for. And so far, no one has stepped in and actually said that. And I think that's what's actually causing this existential angst is that no one is actually stepping in and saying, okay, once all of these uh, machines come in and start doing diagnostic work, legal work, writing novels, <laughs> directing movies, whatever it is, mm -hmm. There's going to be a mechanism in place that will take care of your basic sustenance. Because no one has stepped in and said that, I think it's driving people kind of crazy, right? Oh, and yeah. it, it could be really solved easily by saying, okay, once these things kick in, governments around the world will, will step in and we will support you guys. The fact that this has been just a giant question mark is really annoying. And I, I, I kind of feel like if this doesn't get tackled soon, people are going to start going a bit haywire. I agree. I, I think so. I had mentioned that like there have been these kind of technology revolutions in the past and there have, that was not a lie. But what I didn't mention is that a lot of them were accompanied by some pretty heavy social upheaval, which is not always the most pleasant thing to live through. Like, yes, it's, it's, it's the natural way of things that, that, that um, it's the natural way of things that technology keeps moving forward and if you don't either get on board or get out of the way, right? But it's also pretty painful for the people who have to live through it when while it's happening. And, and it's 100% the job of the communities. And then to be more macro, the job of the government, which is basically the big community, to, to soften the blow because it's like, it's the same, you know, it's like saying like, um, you know, like everyone needs to get chicken pox because it'll protect you in your old age. But that doesn't mean that you need to get chicken pox and then go live out in the woods and suffer through it. You should try to make that transition as comfortable as possible. You know, and I, I agree with you. I think it would be good if, if we could come to some kind of consensus about how we're going to treat ourselves when, when this, this stuff starts hitting the fan. I think that we, whoever comes out on the other side will greatly benefit from the transition, but the people who have to live through the transition, you know, they might be a little worse for wear without help. I 100% I, I hear you and I agree with you. So I think that the transition could be softened by some forward thinking, right? Because I think that we're sort of in the phase of denialism right now, where we're in denialism about like, you know, machine learning, about uh, climate change and so forth. And I think that the sheer act of being in denialism causes people to worry and it causes them to act fairly carelessly. And that can actually lead to some serious 
ugliness. Like if, if, if governments don't have a like, okay, in 20 years, we're going to have this kind of attitude. If, if that's not their attitude, I think there's a legitimacy crisis in there. It doesn't mean that that solution is going to be implemented tomorrow. But like if, if for example, today, Joe Biden got on the airwaves and said, okay, you know, we are rolling out UBI. We hope that to expand this. Uh, and, and I think people would just be like, oh, finally. And they would just kind of relax and th they would have less anxiety. They would have like less anxiety about the future because they know, ah, the government's on top of it. They're, they're, they're slowly unraveling this. But the silence, because, because our government officials are just completely silent on these issues, that's actually creating much more of a storm than necessary. It's almost as if like, imagine you have this, like, I know I'm rambling a lot, but just hear this scenario. Imagine you're a kid and you're really, really hungry and you're sitting at home alone. Imagine it's seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Now imagine your parent calls you at 7.30 and says, hey, sweetie, I, I've just been delayed at work, but I'm bringing home Chinese food. You're going to feel okay. You're going to be like, all right, my, my mom just called me. She's delayed. She's bringing home Chinese. Even though I'm feeling really hungry right now, food is on the way. Whereas if your mom just doesn't call you at all and doesn't tell you that food is coming, you're going to start going batshit crazy and you're going to start to worry. So that's where I see the legitimacy crisis coming in is not that we'll get through it, but that governments are not even taking any kind of preemptive lip service to kind of calm the people. Yeah, I Unfortunately, I think there's like a substantial group of people who disagree with UBI specifically, since that's what we're talking about, and, and would be more alarmed to discover that we're doing UBI. They, they, see, they see it as like a drain on our already limited resources. They don't think that that's the path forward. And so I think that one of the causes of government inaction here is indecision. Right, we have a very schizophrenic country right now. We um, can't seem to agree on anything, and I I think UBI would be great, but there's I I personally know people who would who would never vote for anyone who supported even anything even resembling UBI. They see it as a waste of money. Maybe it's my lack of imagination here, but I think that, and and this is my prediction, like. I think I see two scenarios for this country, okay? The first scenario is that we just say, here's what the future is going to look like. You need to have a vision for the future. It can't just be like, oh, we'll see how it goes. Like, you know, like you can't run a country based on like, I'm going to hop in my car and I'm going to just keep driving and I'll see where I end up because that doesn't make people feel good, right? Like you can't, yeah. can't run a country that way. So I see two scenarios for this country. Here's what the future looks like. Okay, we might we might have some hurdles, we might have some some problems along the way, but this is the vision. This is the vision that we're heading towards. Everyone, get in, put your seatbelts on. It's not going to be a perfect road, but we have a vision. As long as there's no vision as to the future, though, I do not see us going back to 1995 tranquility America. I don't see 1995 America coming back if there's no vision. It doesn't matter if that vision is perfect or imperfect. With no vision, there is no future. And I think the second, the you know, the 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 thing that is really needed to save us is vision. And I think all legitimacy can be solved if there's a vision moving forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Brad, thank you so much for tackling this issue of legitimacy with me. Thanks for having me, Aaron. 
This concludes the 152nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.